Hello and welcome to Demo Tapes, the music podcast which hits rewind and occasionally fast forward on the music and scenes that we've loved. I'm Sarah Jane Kemp and this, my co-host, is Rick Martin. Hey up, Rick. Hi Sarah, how's lockdown three treating you? Oh, you know, it's uh, it's fine. I'm used to being at home by now because it's been uh, almost a year since it first happened, right? Uh, so, you know, I live alone, so it's kind of all right, but I'm enjoying it. We, you know, we're getting more time to do this podcast, which is always a positive and uh, works busy at the moment. So I can't really complain at the moment. And, you know, I'm ha- I'm healthy. Everyone I know is healthy, you know, touch wood. So I'm, I'm, I'm OK. How about you? Yeah, I know what you mean. I, th- I think probably the thing that I've come into lockdown three thinking maybe more than I did the other two. I mean, lockdown two was a really short series. I think it was like TV series. So that was like bonus episodes as opposed to like a full kind of series in November. But I'm thinking I really want to use this for good, like good creative purposes. If you think we we weren't even podcasting back in kind of last March, it was the last thing I wanted to do. I think I talked about that on previous episodes. So I think if I am going to be locked down and, you know, touch wood, remain healthy, I want to use it for for kind of for boosting my creativity and sort of trying some some new things. I think the other thing, though, and we were talking about this off air. I mean, we kind of want demo tapes to be a bit of a COVID lockdown free zone. Obviously, it's going to come up in conversations, right? But we don't want to dwell on it too much. We want this to be a bit of like a haven from all that and, and looking back on the bands and scenes we loved in a way where we don't have to think about necessarily what's going on there now. Is that kind of how you're feeling? Yeah, it's a good little creative outlet where you don't have to really think about, you know, takes you away from what's going on. Uh, the, the horrible kind of stuff that's going on outside the, the four walls that we record in, isn't it? So uh, 100%. I think a lot of people, you know, we talk about this uh, in this interview that we're doing um, around about creativity and how this that this time has kind of given people a bit more uh, chance to be uh, creative when they might not have had that chance when, when you know, normal life was, was happening around us. Yeah, so we're back after um, after a few weeks' break for the Christmas break. Uh, it's a happy New Year to everyone, and uh, we've got a guest on. So, shall we? We should probably tell the listeners who that is, right? Absolutely. So, we have been speaking to a guy called Tom, and he's from a band that you may have heard of uh, if you were back, a, a fan of kind of indie music back in those days. Uh, it's Black Wire. And uh, we got him on as he's a bit of an oracle of the, the noughties guitar scene. And um, we were told by kind of a mutual friend that he was uh, someone that we should get on the podcast because he knows he knows a lot about it. And actually, we were I think we were both you know, pleasantly surprised at exactly how how much he knew. And, and the conversation was amazing. Well, what do you think? Yeah, so we, we kind of wanted to talk to him about Black Wire, but in the end, I think Black Wire became a bit of a sideshow to just reminiscing about those times. So, yeah, we'll get that that interview on a little bit later in the episode. But before that, um, something I wanted to talk to you about, Sarah, I don't know if you'd noticed this this month, but it's a bit of a barren month for, for new music. And I think this is a bit strange, actually, um, because, you know, January normally is typically actually quite a good time for, for indie bands and for alternative bands to release albums. I wonder if you know how many of kind of the big hitters, and I've got a list here, that, that have released albums in January, and if you know kind of the reason why? I don't, but I'm pretty sure you're about to tell me. Yeah, so here's a bit of music industry insider info here. So, yeah, back in the day, certainly in the times I was at NME, like, Indie bands were traditionally, not all not all indie bands, but every now and again they'd put an album out in kind of Jan, Feb, because it's traditionally quite a quiet time for new music coming out and you could get high chart placing. So like an obvious one 
would be Arctic Monkeys debut came out in 2006. Um, whatever people say, um, that's what I'm not. Now, obviously, that was the fastest selling debut album of all time. So you could argue kind of sits outside that. But then like Block Party, second album, A Weekend in the City came out in January 2007. Uh, even their debut album came out on February the 2nd, Silent Alarm. So you can see kind of what they were doing. Their first two albums came out within the first six weeks of the year. Franz Ferdinand's self-titled debut album came out in February the 4th. I think the best example I can give you, actually, is the Maccabees. Were you a fan of the Maccabees? Uh, absolutely, yeah. I loved them. Still do. So you remember their album, Given to the Wild, which I think was where, I think musically, they really sort of took off. I think that was where their sort of sound really expanded. And that came out in January 2012. And at one point, I remember because I was on the enemy at the time, it looked on course for number one and it just missed out. I think it came in, it's like number four. But you can see there that like, that was easily their highest charting album. And it was because they put it out in, in January. So I think it's a bit weird that no kind of alternative bands, probably bar one that I'll come on to in a minute, have, have scheduled in an album release for this month. But I wonder if it's got anything to do with what happened last year. I mean, you'd have thought that that would have given people more time to get in, into the studio, perhaps. But, you know, it was a bit of a tumultuous year, wasn't it? So people might not have necessarily been making as much music for, for whatever reason that might be. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really good point. But yeah, I think the one that I'm looking forward to is Shame's second album, Drunk Tank Pink. I think Songs of Praise, uh, which hit the top 40 after being released in... Yeah, you guessed it, January 2018. Um, and they're like, a, if you haven't heard them, kind of a South London punk band, kind of in the vein of, like, they're in that kind of fat white family scene and, uh, and I guess, influences of kind of noughties indie, really. I'd say they're actually a bit of a throwback to kind of the noughties London kind of indie scene. So, yeah, I'm really looking forward to, to, to hearing that album. And let's see where it charts, because its main contenders, as far as I can see looking at the release schedule, is... Zayn Malik from One Direction's new album. And, uh, hang Barry on, hang Gibb. on. He's dropped the Malik. He's just Zayn now. Get, oh, get sorry, with the program. Yeah. Sorry, yeah, Zayn. It's just Zayn from One Direction. It's quite zany to do that, isn't it? it to, is to drop your name. Well, I mean, his name is an anagram of Zany, I suppose, yeah. And um, Barry Gibb of the Bee Gees. And the reason that, that sticks in my mind is I showed the kids Grease over Christmas. They hated it. They turned it off after, like, half an hour. And that's, obviously, that's all Barry Gibb's music. So, uh that kind of jumped out at me in the schedule. But yeah, they, they seem to be the main things coming out this month, which is which is a bit odd. But also this kind of coincides with something we saw in the papers over the weekend, doesn't it? Yeah, so uh, we both read the Sunday Times. Uh, it's a great paper. If you don't read it, go and buy it on a Sunday. Particularly love the uh, supplements that come along with it. Um, and this was in the culture section. Um, and there was a, a story in it titled Pensioners Take Over Pop. <laughs> which which caught both of our eyes, didn't it? And um, you know, the word pensioner is is quite a, um, it's a provocative word. word quite, isn't it? I was that's exactly the word I was looking for. Provocative. It's a very provocative word, and especially when you see the word pop in the same the same uh, sentence. Anyway, so it's talking about how. Uh, back catalogues are you know huge business I don't know if any of you have, will have heard but only a few weeks ago I remember it was in in the news that Bob Dylan sold his back catalogue for between three and four hundred million um which which wow I mean it's it's that's a Brucey bonus isn't it three, yeah. three to four hundred million dollars three hundred million I mean what is he going to do with that money I, I don't know but I think it's it, it's it's interesting and great but there are uh, there are other artists that have also done the same right Absolutely, yeah, and, and I think I think for me this is this is more about you know the reason we, we're talking about this in the context of new out new music coming out is that I think what the times were getting at was there's this trend of 
people kind of listening to back catalogs the reason that they're so they're 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 so expensive and that artists are being able to command such kind of huge fees for them is with i guess the explosion of stuff like spotify tidal apple music that people are diving into back catalogs in a way they never were before now we all owned a c we all had a cd collection right and if you're a fan of the beatles you probably owned all the beatles cd you know albums on cd but that's not quite the same as having that back catalog there in in your pocket in your phone on on spotify is it and that they're also talking about this comfort listening aren't they they're saying that you know during difficult times maybe people aren't as hungry for new music and they want to they want that kind of warm safety blanket of music that reminds them of better times is that is well, that would that be fair yeah the words nostalgia isn't it people go mad for nostalgia and it is what you say comfort listening it's actually that warm and fuzzy feeling that nostalgia gives you and i wonder if you know it'd be quite interesting to to delve a bit deeper into this at some point around the the link between the feeling yeah, and the physical feeling of particular music that you listen to, listen to, is it because it takes you back to a time when you can remember things and you've got your rose-tinted glasses on? Um, you know, pro- probably one of the reasons we started this podcast was for that very reason, wasn't it? We wanted to kind of look back on the scenes that we loved. Um, but I, I think that must be it, right? Um, when we're talking about this, though, you, you kind of asked both of us, well, you asked yourself and you asked me as well, what, um, you know, is this true of us? What did you think? What back catalogues do we listen to? I guess, yeah, that, that's a good question, isn't it? I think my my listening has always been fairly divided between the two. You know, I still do. I'm always continually hunting out new music. And, you know, my biggest played album of last year was the Oriel's uh, Disco Volador album. Um, I think by, by the end of last year and the end of a few podcasts where I mentioned them, I felt like I was almost harassing them. So I've, I was going to aim to not talk about them on here again, but there I go. I've mentioned them again. So yeah, if, if my favourite album of last year was a new one, that would suggest I don't just dive into back catalogues. But yeah, there are certain artists that I'm, I will go back and listen to their stuff fairly regularly. So I've come up with a top three. Um, they're in no kind of particular order, but definitely Oasis. Uh, I think Oasis is, is a music for all moods, isn't it? Um, I mean, I suppose to counter myself there, I associate, associate that with kind of going out music, but I still think it's stuff you can listen to when you're kind of um, trapped at home. I suppose for me, it's that if we're talking about um, comfort blankets of music, that was my childhood music, right? I'm sure it's the same uh, for you. Well, you were more blur than Oasis, right? But I yeah, I, I guess there's that. And then there's the Smiths. I'll always go back to kind of the Smiths back catalogue and listen to you know, album after album of their stuff, maybe particularly Queen is Dead and uh, Strange Ways, uh, Here We Come. And then maybe more of like a, I don't know what rules we set for this. I'm quite a stickler for rules when we do things like this, but Beach House, which you might think, well, that's a new artist, but in reality, their debut album came out in 2006. So that's like, what, 15 years old now? And, you know, their albums are kind of 10, to, some of their albums are 10 to 15 years old. And they're one of those bands that I will just go through their whole catalogue over the space of a week. Have you ever done that, where you're like a fan of a band and you'll go, I kind of want to go back through their material chronologically, so I'll just put an album on a day or even chain listen to the albums kind of one after the other. I get the sense that's not really your bag. You'll be really surprised, actually. And... uh I was thinking about this because I know we've spoken a lot before about the fact that I don't actually listen to albums. But remember, before Spotify, that was the only real way to listen to music. So it's interesting to think that the the albums that I have, you know, the, the albums that I've listened to are ones that came out before we had uh, streaming sites available. Um, 
And I guess if I had to pick my top three, I've actually got a long list here in front of me, which is quite hard to pick the top three. But at the very top, you'll be surprised about this. And I don't think we've ever talked about this artist, but it's Everything But The Girl and Walking Wounded. And that right. came out in 1996. Do you know anything about everything? everything? Was Everything But The Girl the one that was, and I miss you? Yes. Like the deserts miss the rain. Yes. So that whole album, I really, really, really think you should go and listen to it. It might be, again, it was my mum's favourite album when I was a kid and it was the 90s and we all know that my favourite musical era was the 90s. Um, so when I listen back to that, I get that kind of warm and fuzzy feeling. But I just think it was quite progressive of the time and um, kind of very different, really arty and, uh, and grit, a bit gritty as well. Um, and just screams 90s. I just really love that one. But if you when we're talking about kind of going and listening to uh, the back catalogues of bands, probably the one that I do this mostly with, and I do this probably on a like a, 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 a twice a month basis, maybe is NERD. So the the thing that kind of got me into them was Fly or Die, which came out in 2004, so a couple of years before your your Beach House one. Um, but that album is probably my number one album of all time. Um, I think the way that they've, uh, you know, genius music producers, musicians, you know, two of them met at music school when they were teenagers and created this fantastic, amazing band that kind of... So this is, this is like Pharrell, Pharrell Williams, right? Yeah, and Chad is his kind of musical business partner. But they, yeah. they kind of met and they created something amazing and they've basically just merged a load of genres together that no one has ever been able to replicate and I don't think anyone ever will be able to replicate again and it's just absolutely amazing but yeah is that the I, album with like Rockstar on it no so that's one that's one before this one's got She Wants to Move on it um, which mm. I don't particularly like that song actually but the rest of the album oh my god it is absolutely incredible um, but yeah I, I frequently go back and listen to their albums like from one to the next like in a row like if, if ever I'm in the car with my boyfriend that's what we'll listen to that's what we the first time we met, actually, we both were like, oh, you like NERD? And he's a massive diehard fan. And I was like, right, I know I'm going to like this guy. Um, and then another one just to, oh, I mean, I'm going to just name a few, sorry. Uh, Jamira Choir, Funk Odyssey, uh, Queen, A Night at the Opera. I know I've spoken about that before. Um, Eminem, the Slim Shady LP, that came out in 1999. But I also do listen to just songs as well. So I'm quite into jazz. So I quite listen to, uh, listen to Chet Baker and John Coltrane quite a lot. Um, but yeah, I'll probably listen to more old artists than, than new ones, if I'm honest. So I, I, think, I think it's an interesting, I mean, we, we both think it's a really interesting article and, and definitely something I want to keep an eye on. I think this is something that comes with age as well. The thing we probably should have mentioned up front is the reason it's called the pensioners of pop is that experts and boffins reckon this is being driven by older people, mainly the over 50s to be fair, which we're a little bit shy of yet, but discovering platforms like Spotify and Tidal and Apple Music, apparently they're like the new demographic that are getting onto those platforms you know in the same way that like Facebook started off as a student platform and now the average age of a Facebook user is 50 I think the same thing is happening with those platforms so maybe it's just a sign of our age that uh, that we're the tide between new and old music we're listening to is is turning in favor of the old but hey we wouldn't have a podcast looking back on the bands and scenes we loved if that wasn't the case right Absolutely not. So we've talked about us. Let's talk about the interview that we both did, actually, didn't we? It's the first time we've both done an interview, isn't it, Rick? And uh, it went pretty well. I think usually, yeah, interviews are better served as kind of a one-on-one -on -one experience, often because we're one, one of us will maybe be into an artist more than the other or scheduling conflicts, things like that. But yeah, this definitely felt like a good one that we could, could both get on. We're both in lockdown as well, so we're not exactly... Uh, 
you know, we, we've got the time to kind of jump into things like this. And yeah, as you mentioned earlier on in the episode, we were put onto this guy, Tom Greatorex, who was the bassist in Black Wire. Basically, someone came to us and said, if you want to talk about Naughty's music, this is your guy. You know, obviously, we both remembered Black Wire, we're both fans of Black Wire back in the day, but um, not a band that we thought to get on at this stage because they're not really doing anything at the moment. There's not any anniversaries of their stuff coming up or they're not kind of reforming. So they're a little bit off the radar. And um, yeah, we were really keen to get them on. One thing I will say, Sarah, is, you know, on the Young Knives episode, I did a bit, did a bit of like a, a Desert Island disc style kind of recap of who uh, Young Knives were. I've done the same for, for Black Wire. So do you, want, do you want to hear what I've put together as a bit of a primer on who they are? Of course I do. Okay, so here we go. So this is in like my best Kirsty Young voice. So Black Wire were an art punk trio who rose to prominence and some level of notoriety in the lead scene of the 2000s. Their debut gig at the Pigs Club Night was famously the inspiration for I Predict a Riot by Kaiser Chiefs. After releasing their self-titled debut album in 2005, they toured extensively with the likes of the Cribs and the Libertines, but split in 2007, reforming for the odd one-off gig since. How was that? Oh, well, you're getting better and better every time, Rick. Do you feel back up to speed with who they are now? <laughs> I do, and I'm hoping the listeners do. I think we should get into, get into playing the, the amazing interview. Yes, yeah, so here we go. Let's get Tom X from Black Wire on the line. So here we go. Hi, everyone. Uh, today we're here with Tom from Black Wire, uh, who I've just seen is drinking some delicious looking red wine. Hi, Tom. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Good. Yeah, I'm good, thanks. Um, good. We're also doing a, a bit of a different focus today in terms of the fact that both Rick and I are talking to you. We've never done this before, so this is a first for us. Um, so we've, we've both got a lot to kind of talk to you about. But we want to know, kind of to kick off, how is lockdown number three treating you? I know you know, lots of people are talking about how they're going to use the time. And, and I know you're creative. Obviously, you've been in a band, but now you're a graphic designer. So kind of talk us through what you're up to at the moment. Um, well, it's a funny one because I, um, I actually work in education as well as doing design work. So it's all been the last few days have been pretty crazy because before Christmas, we were told, right, OK, prepare, you know, everyone doesn't matter what's happening. Everyone's going back to college uh, in the new year. And then within 24 hours, it was all sort of like changed. And it's like, no, you're not. It's all online teaching. Mm. So it's been kind of like pretty crazy at the minute. And what I found strange the other day, somebody did mention that it was lockdown number three. And I'm like, is it? I was like, I can't remember lockdown two. It's been, there was one in November, so that was, it didn't seem as strong as this one. So, yeah, so I that, guess was, a, that like was a much second... shorter series, yeah. I've yeah. seen it as basically three series, and there's been a few specials, like going into tears and stuff. Right, yeah, this, yeah. This is This is basically the big third season. Yeah, the, the tears were kind of like a bonus episode, weren't they? <laughs> exactly, yeah. But, That's I mean, the, the first lockdown was obviously, like, that, because it... it I was going to say it was a bit of a novelty, but that's kind of like a throwaway comment, you know, when it affected so many people in such a bad way. So I shouldn't say that. But because it was such a new environment to be living in, it kind of felt like, um, I mean, I was much more creative during that. I felt like I'd got a lot more time uh, to produce work and things. And 
and that that's sort of like I didn't have to chase the creativity it, it sort of came to me it was kind of like a, a natural instinct that sort of came to me this time round um I just uh I just feel really sort of like worn out by it you know it just because it it does seem to be never ending at the minute but it does yeah. I think I think though there is hopefully and I, we don't want to get too bogged down in COVID chat but mm. we do think there is kind of light at the end of the tunnel hopefully um so let's let's see how it goes but you know it's good to hear that you're you're kind of coping yeah. well and and you're okay um yeah and I hope you two are good as well you know because hmm. I think we've both had our ups and downs as as has everyone um yeah, yeah uh, I mean yeah personally like I I find I'm finding this this time a whole lot easier just because I'm used to being in the house now I live alone right. as well so sometimes okay. I used to hate being alone and in, in the house but I'm kind of all right with it now so it's I, I think that's one good positive thing that's come out of it for me I'm yeah, pretty sure yeah, Rick's yeah. Rick's have it Rick's all right as well aren't you Rick yeah I, I actually feel okay with this one this this time to be honest because you kind of know what to expect I think with the other yeah. lockdown for me it was the fear of the unknown whereas with this yes we don't know when when it would be lifted but we at least know kind of what it will feel like and I do think it's about keeping yourself busy and keeping yourself created yeah, perhaps having yeah. a music podcast yeah. that looks back on the golden age of guitars you know well why not uh, quite a few have started up I've noticed that are covering um covering a, a similar era and a similar sort of scene as well which is kind of like um why I think that, that, that we were talking earlier about um your last uh, interview with Laura who's doing the Giddy Stratospheres film and I think that is coming along just sort of at the right time. And in a way, it's kind of like, it's exciting. And it's sort of a little bit depressing knowing that something that you were a part of and something that was such a big formative part of your life is now seen as like this sort of period piece or, you know. No, don't say depressing. I think it's a great thing. I, you know, one of the things... Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, depressing in terms As of... As in, like, like, you're old. <laughs> how did I get this? Sorry, can I swear on this? Can, yes, of course can. you can, yeah. We can uh, take the bolt as explicit. Right. How yeah. did I get this old? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I think we think that as well, don't we, sometimes? But um, one of the things that like, Rick and I were talking about a while ago, but actually came back into my head again today, was thinking about doing a demo tape to pub night. And I think, like, as you're right, you know, there's lots of talk around that, that particular period now and with the Giddy Stratospheres film coming out I think people would be into it so as soon as lockdown's lifted and we're able to get a party again I fully intend on uh, starting a, a club night what do you say Rick? I think it's a, a great idea a brilliant idea and yeah the, the market's for it but, but, you know it'll just be it'll probably be more sedate than it used to be because <laughs> we're all well myself at least is much older It'll be, it'll, be, it'll be red wine, it'll be red wine and cheese rather than, you know. I'm there. Put me on the guest list. <laughs> there we go. But yeah, just before we, you know, we want to go back into looking at the beginnings of the band and things like that. But one of the things I did want to, to ask so I can give the, the listeners a bit of a picture, because if you, you know, if you know Black Wire and you remember um, the members of Black Wire and what they used to look like, particularly with the kind of big hair and the skinny jeans, I want you to just, I would I'd like you to just describe a little bit about how you actually look these days. I can see looking at you on camera a lot different. So yeah. what would you say? Um, well, it's funny because at the time, so we formed in, for anyone who doesn't know, we, we, we formed in Leeds in 2003. I think it was um, and around that time in Leeds the music scene th there was a really tight DIY music scene 
um, but it was a lot of sort of post-punk, post-rock bands. So there was a lot of sort of like uh, skater hoodies and cargo pants and, mm. and things mm. like that. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. Right? That is totally fine. But by the time it got to where um, sort of, that's sort of, that sort of cultural apex for people of a certain age when the Strokes came out. Um, and so we formed a band sort of around that time and we were just like, well, we just want to look the opposite to what all these bands look like in Leeds, which was part of it, you know, part of it was conscious. And then part of it was just that all the music that we were influenced by such as the cramps, the birthday party, um, a lot of sort of like darker, like electronic music, um, our, our sort of like aesthetic and sartorial sort of like paintwork came much more from that rather than this post-rock area. So we sort of, we wore, you know, exceptionally skinny jeans which at the time you couldn't you couldn't just go into top shop or whatever and buy them mm. you know um i remember dan coming home um dan the singer coming home from middlesbrough one day it's like oh look i found a pair of in mam's jeans like in the closet <laughs> and that's how tight they are like, oh what and so yeah we'd have to go into town and we'd have to buy sort of like um you just go to like sort of school shops and stuff and just buy like, you know, like <laughs> tall girls jeans and things like that. And um, yeah, we, we had a huge amount of hair at the time, sort of like this explosion of crows in an ink factory kind of thing going on. Um, and, you know, every everybody wants to have, like everyone who is in a, a band or whatever wants to, affect culture in a certain way I think but I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that we were the only three people in Leeds at that time that looked like that. Mm. I think it's um, interesting you talk about yourself as, as being those three people because I heard a story that Dan's girlfriend when he moved to Leeds because he's from Middlesbrough obviously I know you're from yeah, that's Chesterfield right, yeah. way like Derbyshire yeah, way. Yeah yeah he he's 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 apparently said in previous interviews that he was warned not to go near you by his by his girlfriend because his girlfriend knew of you. Yeah. So how Harry, did that come together then? Um, so I moved to Leeds in 1999 to do graphic design at Leeds University, um, and his then girlfriend was on the same course, um, and so she'd never mentioned him to me, um, but then. A couple of years later, Dan applied again to do the same graphic design course. And um, and so his girlfriend said, oh, when you go there, you you know, you will inevitably meet this guy called Tom because you've got the same music interests, you know, the same interest in art and all that. And I, I have no idea why she said stay away from him. I don't <laughs> know what I'd done to give the impression that I should be warned off of people um I, I mean who knows i don't know but yeah i i remember that from the time actually yeah. but maybe that was more the reason that brought you together right maybe when you're told not to do something then that's that's well you then go and do yeah, the opposite quite possibly maybe she knew that we would get on so well that uh 
we'd end up forming a band or something. <laughs> trouble, trouble would happen, and I think yeah. maybe trouble in a good way. In, in your case, forming a band and and uh, probably some of the things that you used to get up to. We want to hear about some of those stories from those times. You know, do you have do you have many memories, or is it a bit hazy? No, I mean, I, I remembered. I remember things, you know, pretty clearly. Um, it's funny because you, you listen to these podcasts and stuff and you, you hear so many bands go, oh, you know, I can't really remember because, you know, I was so drunk and stuff. But even though, you know, we were doing things that bands would do at that time, I remember everything because it was so exciting and it was so new and it was so fresh. Um, so I think sort of my main memories really are just being on tour with the Cribs um, we toured with them so many times, you know, like, um, and there's, I mean, there's a lot of stories that you can't really sort of tell. See, this is, this is the issue. There's a lot of, there's a lot of those sort of stories that you can't really come out with because there's, there's people involved that you don't want to upset. And I'm not, and I'm not talking about the crazy because <laughs> they're, three of the loveliest people you could ever meet, you know. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how far I could go with that. Well, I, th I think we'll, we'll try and probe some of those stories out. Yeah, but I, I think yeah. I think one thing I wanted to kind of kind of talk about was, you know, two th you formed in 2003, and, you know, that was a time when I don't think the Leeds music scene had really kicked off. And, you know, I, I'd seen quotes from Dan before saying, you know, it was um, sort of place where you'd get pint pots thrown at you while you were going to rehearsals and yeah, that's right. losing yeah. teeth at a gig. So kind of, um, I guess, paint a little bit of a picture of what Leeds, you know, there's clearly a creative side to Leeds, same with lots of northern cities, but it sounds yeah. to me like it was quite a tough place to, to be yeah. growing up musically as well. Well, it's funny, really, because Leeds is very much dominated by the, the, um, the student side of the, the, you know, the, the city centre at least is very led by um, the all the students. And so all the clubs in town and all the bars in town, they're very close to each other. And around that time, it was very sort of like, you know, as you probably remember, all cities were fairly tribal. You know, you'd have like your Majestics mm -hmm. crowd, then you'd have like your indie club crowd. And then you'd have us walking around looking like we'd just been beamed down from some other planet kind of but the way we got around this was um so nick hodgson um who was in a band called parva that went on to be kaiser chiefs and mm -hmm. um, i remember him ringing me up and going come to the royal oak in headingley there's a few of us going i've got this scrapbook i need to show you um and and I want you to be a part of this thing. So I get there and there's him. And I think uh, Ricky Wilson was there, a guy called Ash. Ricky and Wilson, that, that, that's now Ricky Wilson of The Voice fame, right? As well as Kaiser yes, Chiefs. Yes, that's yeah. correct. Yeah, Saturday yeah. Night Light Entertainment fame. Yeah. And so we get to the pub and, and, and Nick gets this scrapbook out. He's got loads of cuttings of articles about trash in, you know, the club in uh, London. In Errol, London. Yeah, yeah. And he's going we're going to do something like this in Leeds because it was around that time that sort of yeah, 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 had released the master EP um, strokes had been around for a while and stuff like that. And we, and you'd notice in town, there was a lot more, there, there was a lot more people dressing sort of slightly differently to what had been going on before. Mm. And all this new music was coming out and there wasn't really anywhere to go and hear it. 
So Nick was like, right, we're going to do this. We're going to do this. And so he sorted out this club called the Hi-Fi Club and it became this club like called Pigs. And Pigs was kind of like, it was it was a shot in the dark, really, because we were like, um, is it going to work? You know, is there enough people that's into this to actually make this? Thing? And anyway, on the first night, there was like 500 people there and it was packed out. And that was, to me, sort of galvanised what was going on, that everything that we were doing that was right. Everybody that was forming a band was right. Everyone that was starting a fanzine was right. This mm. thing was happening. And you saw it on this one night when all these people came down. But that said, that, that was pre-social media that you would have launched that. So how, right. how, did, how did you spread the word then? I designed the flyers for the first night and then me and my friend Dom walked around town for two weekends leading up to it, just giving them out to everybody we could. Um, and then it, that was it. It was literally just handing out flyers. Um, but I think because the, the bands that were listed on the back, you know, it, if you knew a couple of those bands, you'd be like, I'm going to this because the, there's nowhere else in town that I can hear it, you know. And, and so Pigs went on for um, a few years. It was our Blackwire's first gig was at Pigs. Um, the Future Heads played, ARE Weapons played. Um, and then what happened was um, Nick Hodgson from the Kaiser Chiefs and a guy called Nick Scott, who does all the artwork for the Cribs, they started another night called the Village Green at this tiny little bar called Milo. And so if, if Pigs was this sort of cultural mecca for the centre of Leeds, then the Village Green was like the cultural omphalus. So everybody that went to the Village Green was somehow creatively involved in Leeds. So you'd have Paloma Faith and Ricky Wilson working behind the bar. Mm. You've got Nick Hodgson DJing, um, the Cribs are there. You've got Sam Riley from 10,000 Things. We went on to play Ian Curtis in Control. Uh, Tim Jones from The Enemy, Alex Miller, who wrote for Enemy and went on to uh, work at Vice. Yeah, I knew uh, both those guys. Yeah, yeah both back in the day. absolutely brilliant guys as well, you know. And so this other sort of like thing started, and that only lasted six months, but it was... It was fantastic. And what was great about it was they'd sometimes put bands on, you know, um, sort of like local bands or whatever. It, I can't tell you how tiny this bar is. I don't know if you've mm. ever been to Milo. I feel, like, I feel like I might have been, you know, back yeah. in the day, but it's probably like only once or twice at most. Kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And so sometimes they'd put bands on. and But what was great about it was once the bands had finished, if there were any other bands or milling about, you'd go, oh, you know, Ross, like from the Cribs, do you want to play drums? I've got this idea for a song. And then somebody would jump up and start playing. And there'd be people walking around giving out their new fanzines and all this kind of thing. It was, it was, it really felt like something like incredible was happening. And I think, that's not to that's not to say that this was only happening in Leeds, because it was happening all over the country. You know, I remember in Sheffield, you've got people like Ralph doing uh, Razor Stiletto, yeah, and then in Birmingham, you've got like Chickstick Jerks and Cold Rice. 
um, obviously in London you've got loads of stuff like uh, Cozy and uh, all the Sonic Moop Nights and things like that. So there was this this point where everything just seemed creative. Every city you went to seemed to have this version of what we were experiencing in Leeds, you know. And I'm sure every other city would go, well, actually, we were the ones that did it first. You know, mm. I was going to pick you up on that, though, because we've had other interviews where this has been talked about, that there were these kind of things springing up. Even the Paddingtons in Hull, right, were saying yeah. there was something yeah. of like a scene there. Do you think they were linked? Was there a link between them? Because, again, this is almost kind of pre other than MySpace, which we do want to talk to you about. And Sarah's yeah, got some yeah. insights on that. But, you know, other than MySpace, it was kind of pre social media. So were those scenes linked, do you think, in some ways? Was it? I don't think it was linked in terms of people. I don't think it was linked in terms of people getting in touch with each other. I think it was. I don't want to sound like Bill Drummond from the KLF or something, <laughs> but I think there was something tangible in the air that the people of a certain generation and the people of a certain cultural bent needed and it wasn't provided. And so it had to be created there and then. They, yeah, I suppose I suppose every generation sort of talks about this like explosion of purpose that the youth have around the time. Um, and I suppose that was ours, you know. I think as well, one of the things that I think about that scene, maybe maybe they weren't all linked, but I, and I don't know whether you guys used to do the same, I almost used to go on holiday to the different cities to go and experience their scene. Yeah, absolutely. So, so yeah. I'm from Nottingham, and so Liars Club was the one in my hometown. Ricky, Ricky yeah. Haley, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Ricky, oh, you used to hang out with Ricky Haley yeah. and all, you know, all the things like that. But um, so, yeah, we used to go to, you know, Sheffield and Leeds and mostly the north and then I moved down to London but that I literally used to plan my little UK holidays around where can I go and what can I experience in these yeah. different and it was really it was the same but different in every place and yeah and it was almost interesting to see the kind of the way people dressed in different cities was different as well that's right yeah 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 like it, you were just saying yeah it almost seems it was see this is the kind of thing that, that I worry about like you know starting talking like an old man but it almost seems like it was that time just before the internet homogenized sort of like every city. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying it was better then or worse, you know. That's just an observation. I think mm. that um, mm. it was a time where, it, you know, people might wear a slightly different leather jacket if you went to Nottingham than they did in Leeds or something like that. It's really true, yeah. But yeah. talking about social media and, and, and that kind of coming along, I actually worked at MySpace as an intern. I moved to London to go to uni and ended up being a MySpace intern, right, which, was, okay. which was one of the, you know, the best time I could have done it because it was literally at, at its peak when I joined. Um, and we used to have something called the MySpace bus that used to go around loads of different festivals around the UK, and yeah. and we'd we'd, do, we'd put secret gigs on uh, on the bus, and people yeah. would had a little um, road team would go and grab people and and uh, bring them to the gigs. Mm. But I guess one of the things I wanted to ask you was, you know, some of the, some people who who are listening now might not know the powers of MySpace back in the day and, and what it was like as a band to to kind of have that that to be one of the first things that ever existed where you could not only build relationships with people in the music industry and I know you've got a story about that but mm -hmm. also your fans because 
um, that didn't exist before then. That's right, yeah. Um, I think, I, I can't remember what came first. I can't remember if it was MySpace or the Libertines uh, Forum. But did they both sort of work in tandem in terms of what we're talking about? Um, 188020, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> See, I was on there yeah. as well. That's it, yeah. Because I think, um, again, we, we, we're talking about sort of firsts and everything. And it did seem like, you know, this was the first time that, you know, the, the very early 2000s where every home was starting to get the internet. And so there was a connection with people outside of your town, outside of your city. And there's, I think there's something quite magical about that. Um, and so you could go to a gig with, you know, you get a young person's rail card, you can get a cheap train out of your town. And the people that you meet at that gig, you don't have to just remember them as somebody you met at a gig. You can go home and you can get in touch with them immediately and you can mm -hmm. become friends with them. And it made that whole scene much smaller um much smaller in terms of the people that you could associate with you know um and what happened as you remember was people would then start organizing to go to gigs on mass you know you'd get you'd have your group of five or six friends that you'd met at different gigs around the country and you'd organize to go to you know the gig somewhere all together and I think that's great. I think I think a brilliant thing about that is that people who may have grown up as, you know, the only sort of like alternative or funk or indie kid or whatever in their town didn't have to feel as marginalised or alienated as they maybe would have done before. Um, yeah, I, I think it was it was it was a brilliant way of getting music out as well my space was you know i mean you look at people like you know the arctic monkeys um lily allen people like that you know jamie t at the time they were known as MySpace bands yeah mm. you know that, that's that's crazy to think about now you know particularly the arctic monkeys they you know they're one of the only british bands of the last 20 years that have conquered or conquered in inverted commas america you know to think that they started on MySpace is just insane. But I think what happened, particularly around all that time, all the time that we're talking about, things are happening really, really quickly. So the, the, I, think, I think a really important thing that happened was the enemy doing that um, I Heart New York issue. I don't know if you remember that. I think it was just before the modern age came out. Would have been about two thousand and one, yeah. Yeah, that. and that's yeah. where yeah, 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 as an Interpol. That's and those right. Bands, yeah. yeah, I, I wasn't yeah. writing for Enemy at that point, but it was yeah. about a year, year or two before I joined. Yeah, okay. But I was, I was definitely reading it. Because that, well, that's it. Everybody, or I say everybody, all my friends my age, that issue was mega important because it didn't just cover sort of like you know the Strokes and all that. You had all these other bands like the Moldy Peaches were in it, you know. Mm. I'm a huge Moldy Features fan. I think that that first record is like untouchable, and I remember I remember this so clearly. I remember getting that issue of the Enemy on the Wednesday. Wednesdays used to be so important, you know, Enemy and Melody Maker. 
I remember getting that issue on the Wednesday, reading about all these bands. I'd heard of The Strokes, and I'd heard one song on, on the Mac might have played it on, on Radio 1. I was reading about the, all these others, and I'm like, Moldy Peaches, like, they look amazing. They sound brilliant. And then that was on the Wednesday. On the Thursday night, I heard them being played on John Peel. Mm. Friday morning, I went to Jumbo Records in Leeds, and I bought the record. And I noticed up on their gig board, it, they'd got the strokes written up there. Um, and I said, is that, is that the strokes from New York? And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they were, you know, they're advertising this gig at the cockpit. And I was like, yeah. right, so I'll get yeah. a ticket for that. And Moldy Peaches was supporting them. Um, so all this stuff sort of happened really quickly. And then after that, everything just happened even quicker. Um, and that, a lot of it is down to the internet um so like you know going i was diving you know going off on a tangent then but go back to the arctic monkeys i remember we every time we'd play in sheffield it'd be a really healthy crowd you know there's a lot of people there and all that and then i remember this one time we turned up and there was about 20 people there maybe mm. less and i'm like what have we done? You know, what's gone wrong? The promoter said, oh, this band playing across town. Um, that's a pretty new band. These young lads called Arctic Monkeys. And everyone's going, oh, God, fuck that. Arctic Monkeys. Mm. Who the hell is going to like a band called Arctic Monkeys? Worst band name I've ever heard in my life. You know what I mean? So it's I'm funny like, you say that. On my first night at uni, I went out at uni on my first mm. night. And, uh, you know, as you would if you were an 18-year-old who wrote for the enemy, I might have told a couple of my housemates that's what I did on the side yeah. for extra cash, right? So obviously then they introduced me to their mates, so this guy writes for enemy. And a kid said to me, you should go and see this band, Artsy Monkeys. This was like 2004. They probably yeah. only formed like a few months before. Yeah, and I, yeah. went, I went, you know what? Because people used to come up with tips all the time. Went, nah, that'll never work. A band called Arctic Monkeys. <laughs> I've got and It the took same me another thing. six months to go. Really? And see yeah, them. I, I yeah. never went to see them before. Like some three of my good friends from Nottingham actually made a thank you in their first album because they were proper like early on supporters. And I was used to say, no, I'm not coming because I don't like the name. And yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I really regret that now. <laughs> yeah, but this is the thing because Rick, I think you wrote the first main interview for the arctic monkeys in enemy didn't you which listeners was... can hear uh, footage from on uh, one of our early episodes of this podcast yes ah, yeah i did yeah. i remember you know what i remember that piece like really well i remember i was we were in the studio recording the album and it was just like you know this probably wasn't this probably wasn't much much later than that sheffield gig where i've been irked by them and so I'm mm, sat there in mm. the studio and we're recording the album, like Sai will be doing his guitar part or something. And I'm opening the pages and then I open them and then they're there. And I'm like, oh, not again. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. Every time. But, but this is what I was saying about things happening really quickly. So I think their, their first London gig was at the Astoria, you know. I think, like they played, I, think, I think they played Dublin Castle first and then they came oh, back right. to the story. But it was a very yeah. quick, yeah, it was a yeah. very quick rise. It was probably like three, four months between yeah. the two. Because this was the first time that young kids were getting music straight away, you know, not paying for it. I'm not saying that's, again, not saying it's a good thing or a bad thing but at the time. It was the first time kids were having access to music instantly. And and so for a lot of bands, that that, that gave like an instant fan base you know mm, mm. and what i noticed about the arctic monkeys which is still quite baffling to this day was 
for about six months, they were playing gigs to a, sort of like a, a gender mixed crowd of very young kids. And at about the six month mark, it stopped and it was blokes. And it was like an Oasis beer chucking monkeys, monkeys kind mm. of crowd. Mm. And I, I, I find that really, really strange. I remember speaking to Dorian from the Long Blondes. They supported them at a gig in Sheffield and it must have been around that time and I remember him saying they walked on stage um, and they the crowd were just like throwing pints at them and like giving them like all this like homophobic abuse and stuff like that and I think they played like two or three songs and then walked off mm. wow. the, the audience had just switched like what that. if that was that one they did at um, Don Valley I think it might have been the Don Valley gig that one right, okay. talking about it yeah, yeah. I think it's interesting as well. Another, you said you went on a tangent about New York there, but this probably leads us quite neatly onto the gangs of New Yorkshire. So you know, right. you said okay. that yes. you, you were yeah. you were keeping a, a keen eye on what was going on in New York, and then fast forward to kind of, I think it must have been two thousand and five, two thousand and six. And I know this because I, I was the one banging onto my editors saying there isn't just Arctic Monkeys. I remember writing this line in review once that said, Arctic Monkeys are just the tip of the iceberg. Mm. lame joke right with the whole you know yeah, yeah. iceberg but i like it, was, it. i think that's good <laughs> but it was it was true right and yeah. and there was we we kind of painted the scene as there was stuff going on in sheffield and there was stuff going on in leeds and the national spotlight was on it so i guess i'm interested did you see that as a helper a hindrance to blackwire did, did you or did you feel that you're all being lumped in as the new fad for the national media that then the spotlight was going to move quite quickly you know right this is a difficult sort of like question to answer because at the time if we were getting if we were getting a lot of independent enemy not just enemy but independent sort of like music coverage then we would have probably shied away from it you know um all three of us were very stubborn people and i think if we were in the enemy sort of like uh or other music magazines every other week or whatever we'd have gone no we don't want to be a part of it and you know artistically even because of that even if we weren't getting that artistically we could have gone no we don't want to be a part of this thing but any band who is trying is doing everything themselves you know we didn't have label money you know we were doing everything as much as we could ourselves mm. So that opportunity comes along. And it's like, damn right, yeah, I'm going to do it. I don't care if I'm lumped into this scene because whatever, you know, that young sort of like attitude of whatever we do next, we're going to transcend that anyway. Mm. So, you know, mm. if we get lumped into it, then it's just a thing. Um, so, no, I, you know, I, I don't I don't think it was necessarily a help or a hindrance, really. Um, partly because I think all of the bands that were included in that sounded very very different you know i don't think i don't think it, it was it wasn't it wasn't like a scene that was being built on sound you know not, not like the baggy scene or the grunge scene or something mm. it, it mm. was purely geographical and it was because there were a hell of a lot of really good bands coming out of places like leeds and sheffield and it had been the first time for a long time that that had happened because Manchester and Liverpool had always had the sort of like musical cultural capital over those other two cities. Mm. 
think uh, that could have been the same for we would we've been talking about the london's burning uh scene as right, well haven't yeah, we on, on yeah. one of the, the previous podcasts and i think it might be the same as what you're saying but in terms of like the other bands from leeds did you did you feel a uh, kinship with any of them so no. no none of them no not at all um when when we started like like i was saying before about how the way we dressed and the way we looked um we whether it was by um sort of like nature or design we sort of alienated ourselves against a lot of the music scene no not i'm not saying we were horrible to people because we weren't it's just that we didn't want to be a part of that music scene that was going on we want we wanted to be black wire like we didn't want to be black wire from leeds or mm. we didn't want to be mm. black wire we just wanted to be black wire so we we sort of um we would we were just this tight nucleus of three people and i think a lot of people saw that as like impenetrable and pretentious and it was never meant to be any of that uh, most of it was probably down to our own insecurities really um so we didn't have a kinship with any uh band in leeds at all um Apart from the cribs, but they're not from Leeds. It's very important to point from out. Wakefield. From Wakefield, yeah. correct? Wakefield, yeah. Then, yeah. then, then, okay. If you if you weren't kind of close friends, I guess, with with some of the other bands from Leeds, who were you mates with back in the time? Like in um, terms of bands, uh, the cribs, obviously, definitely. Um, there was Selfish Cunt from London. Um, who else were there? He keeps cropping up on this podcast. It's one right. of those we're going to I mean, have to interview. He comes up in every interview. Every single time, yeah. <laughs> it's because I think what they were doing was absolutely fantastic. Um, you know, it was such a confrontational band. Um, mm. Great music. But there was those, there was um, The Rocks, The Rocks from London, um, 10,000 Things, actually, although it was only really Sam. We didn't really know the other bands. Um, but we, like I say, we we sort of, we just wanted to be us and uh, and again i don't know if it was because we were insecure or shy is probably not the right word but mm. um we just loved each other like the three of us like loved each other so much and i think we didn't want any real outside influence and again it goes back to that thing of what i was talking about about when we first started and the DIY scene in Leeds, you know, you'd go and see a band and they'd have a drummer that had been drumming with another band before and like everyone would mix and match. And you just mm, think, mm. how can you be, how, how can you be this family of a band when you've got people going, oh, well, I can't do a gig tonight because our bass player's got to go and play with this other band across town. That mm. make sense. I hated all that. I've, I've <laughs> always loved the idea of a band as a gang. It's yeah, a rock and roll yeah, yeah. gang, isn't it? That, yeah. That's what I always thought when I saw you guys. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you seem quite. I mean, I would say when I say intimidating, I don't mean in like a an overt kind of um, masculine sort of aggressive way. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. I think especially when you're a journalist, it can be quite intimidating when you try and. And I don't know. I actually don't know if we met back in the day. I think it's all a it's all a blur to me whether we did yeah. or we didn't. We probably did at some point. But you know, when you get those bands that just all they look like a band, they look tight, and if you try yeah, and get a question yeah. in. They're probably all communicating almost in their own language. That was the vibe I had when I saw yeah. you guys on our not stage. To be yeah. honest, yeah. I mean, again, I like I'm I'm glad that it came across like that because again, you know, like, like I say, that's how I want a band to be. And we didn't sit down and go, right, 
we're going to dress like this and you know we always knew that we were going to look different because we just sort of like kind of dress different anyway but we never said you know we we need to be a gang it just happened naturally mm. and I, and there's something that i love about that because dan and Sai from the band they've known each other for years from middlesbrough and then then i became involved in like you know with them and to to have that level of closeness with two people who've known each other since they were little kids mm. is is lovely and it's really heartwarming um and so we just you know it was basically it was three people looking after each other in an industry in a world that none of us had a clue about you know Mm. But you and say you that, were young, I mean, and you were young. I think yeah. that's the thing as well. It must have been daunting, I guess. But as, as much as it was exciting, it must have also been a bit daunting to be thrown into massive spotlight and sort of going traveling around. You know, loads of people loving you and wanting to meet you, and 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 the pressure as well on you know trying to create good art yeah. because you needed to do that for the record label. So, what did you think? Was it was it a lot of pressure? Did you feel that pressure? Yeah. Um, I don't know. At the time, I didn't feel the pressure at all. Looking back on it, I can quite clearly see when each of us was sort of like suffering from anxiety or depression or panic attacks and stuff. But you're young Fine. and it was something that at the time was never talked about. But it, it that pressure was there. It's just that we dealt with it in a completely different way. And also, I think we were so sort of like strong-headed about what we were doing that if there was any pressure we we kind of like own it we go yeah well if this is what needs to be done this is what needs to be done I mean our first tour we booked ourselves we put um we pulled all our dole money um and we carried every single piece of equipment that we had onto a train the dole money bought the first bought the tickets to the first gig and then every, all the money we got from that we'd spend on train tickets sleeping on people's floor and going mm, around mm. we got back to leeds after about a week and a half of doing this tour and um we saw in do you, do you remember sandman magazine oh yeah i wrote a few pieces yeah. For sandman. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah right okay so there was a review in there going on about how we were this like pampered band and uh they know nothing about diy and stuff like that and i was just like fuck <laughs> you do you know the hell that we've had to go through just because we wanted to play some gigs around the country? You know what I mean? And it was just like, yeah. So, um, yeah, there, there was a lot of pressure, but a lot of the pressure was the pressure that we put on ourselves to do the things that we wanted to do. You know? Which is probably why I did some, some, something really good and what you wanted. But do you think, yeah. knowing, like you just said, actually, that you didn't know what it was back then because depression, anxiety and panic attacks just weren't talked about. And I'm sure yeah. everyone had them um, yeah. and didn't realise yeah. what was going on. Do you think if you'd have known what they were back then, you might have done something a bit different? No. No? Not at all. Um, I think I'm not, I'm not a great believer in fate or anything like that. You know, it's not something I've ever subscribed to. But we weren't in a band just because we wanted to be in a band we were in a band because we had nothing fucking else that we could do we had to do that band it was mm -hmm. so important maybe we didn't realize it at the time i don't know but it had to happen and i know this sounds like some kind of like 
self-aggrandizing mythology bullshit or whatever but i swear to god it's the truth that band had to happen and it had to happen with those people well it's like that's what these what people sometimes say isn't it that um what's what's the saying it's like you can you can do it basically you can do anything you put mind to that's what yeah, i'm trying to say yeah. it is kind of true like if you work hard enough um i don't know i think some some of these kind of um these i'm not going to say the word younger but it probably is just something that's kind of come to light over social media quite a lot recently yeah. of people saying you can do anything you want to do sometimes i look at that and go i mean maybe you can't though like if you can't no, you sing you can't yeah. sing yeah, you can't. if you can't sing you can't <laughs> sing you. But I think there is an element of, you know, I'm, you know, you have the talent, obviously, it's clear, it's clear you have the talent and you were determined. And I think those two went hand in hand together with you. Yeah, I think there was, there was another really important thing that made it happen as well. At the time, you could exist on the doll. Yeah, that was and not only that, but there was this thing called New Deal for Musicians at the time. It was set up, I believe, by Alan McGee in the late 90s and it meant that if you were in a band um and you could prove you're in a band and you were you were doing gigs and you were touring you would get an extra 25 pound a week for strings and things like that mm. um i can't remember when that stopped i think that stopped in like 2006 or something but it was little things like that that helped make it happen you know oh, it's definitely I, true I, of leads i mean i used to do an economic yeah. test of wherever i went how much was a taxi and I remember once going out in Leeds and then getting a taxi at about four in the morning it was about a fiver to get from one side of the city to the other like yeah. most cities yeah. I'd walk because I wouldn't I wouldn't get a taxi in Sheffield no way like, yeah yeah talking 20 quid there in Leeds yeah. for some reason it seemed to be a fiver to go yeah. anywhere yeah yeah Leeds was um eminently walkable you know you could <laughs> you could go anywhere which was it was great as well because I think another good thing about Leeds is the student area around Hyde Park. And I think this is uh, another reason why it was such a creative place. Every single one of them student houses had an empty basement. Mm. And you could walk down any street and let's say you've got a street with 20 houses on. I guarantee at least seven of them have got a drum kit and a guitar amp and stuff in the basement. Wow. Yeah. That's something so, I've never heard before, actually. That's yeah. wonderful. I now hope you, that still happens you, today. Well, you're yeah. jogging my memory now. I think I must have been to as many house parties in Leeds as I went to gigs, if you know yeah. what I mean. Either yeah, after yeah. gigs or just in place of going to a gig. Yeah, and you'd see I, a band yeah. playing in the corner. You know? That's it, yeah, yeah. And I think uh, that's what, you know, having having those tools there, having that space, that's what births, you know, bands. That's what births people starting, you know, building their own screen printing tables in a basement mm, mm. and making fanzines and doing all these things if you've got those means and you've got the creativity to do it you'll find a way of doing it mm. but if you haven't got those means and you still got the creativity it's frustrating as hell mm. and it's very little you can do to sort of you know assurge that what do you think to the uh getting political here <laughs> the uh, the government telling everyone they have to retrain I mean, well, what is there to think about it? I, I don't know. It's uh, There's no point applying logic to something that contains no logic in the first place, I don't think. you know, What are people going to retrain as? And, and if they do retrain, where are the jobs that exist for these people that have just retrained? You know, it, we, you know, as a country, we, the, the culture that we export with 
touring bands, you know, I think it's something like two and a half billion that it brings in to this country. Mm. Uh, and now you've got bands where there's 27 countries they can't go to without a visa now. Yeah. But they're still wanking on about who owns certain fish in the sea. Mm. I, I, it, I have to stop thinking about it at times because it, it, you think about, like I say, you think about it with a logical mind, but there's no basis to actually plant that logic into. But it's, it's overall, it's, it's sad, right? You know, it's, yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. Devastating. Yeah. And another one thing that kind of like irks me is that people go, oh, well, you look to the past and you look at all these, you know, you look to the 70s or the 80s and Thatcher and, and all the great culture that grew out of that. It's like great culture did grow out of that, but great culture will grow anyway. I don't want to have to see people not being fed or kids not being educated or, you know, people not having jobs just so good culture can grow. I don't give a mm. fuck if mm. another hardcore punk scene comes out of this. Who cares? That's not important, you know single parents not being able to feed the kids because they haven't got a job and they can't pay the heat in that's more important than somebody screaming into a microphone mm. now i think we've kind of brought this chat kind of round to, to the now and i guess to round off we do want to talk about giddy stratospheres but before yeah. that the only other thing i wanted to mention from a black wire point of view and we are we are running low on time is your other big cultural impact which was being the inspiration for I Predict a Riot by Kaiser <laughs> yeah, Chiefs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the thing i've always wanted to know because that's kind of a well-worn tale mm. right did Nick really say that on the club night? You know, you played your first gig at that club night. Mm -hmm. There was a riot, right? Or he was yeah. certainly surmising there was going to be one if, yeah. if things weren't brought under control. Did he actually utter those words? Well, I don't know, because at the time, I was too busy on stage in just my underpants being punched in the face by a bouncer. So <laughs> I don't Hang on, just your underpants. Explain yeah. that one. I, I, I can't. That, that's <laughs> one thing that I can't quite remember how that came about um but yeah it was it was chaotic it was um it probably yeah it was close to a riot um but i'll tell you this if nick says that he said it then he said it because <laughs> that is a guy who he hasn't got one atom in his body that could tell a lie so if he says he said it, he said it. But is, is it weird, you know, because that song crops up in all sorts of places now. You can hear it on the football. You'll hear mm. it, you know, on Saturday night TV or on those kind of shit Channel 5 clip shows where they're showing soap characters having a fight or whatever, yeah. you know. You, you feel like any music consultant on a TV program now types in the word riot. That's usually the first thing that comes yeah. up, right? So is it weird that every now and again you'll hear that song unexpectedly and it's taking you back to Blackwire's kind of first gig? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, it is weird, but but I think what people should, un what, what I'm saying is what my mum should understand is that the song isn't about us. <laughs> you know, that we were the germ of an idea for a song, which is just as great, you know, and it's a fantastic pop song and they're a fantastic band. Um, it is strange, um, but it gets to the point where you kind of, just forget about it really you know mm, mm. but it's a good story it's a it really is. good story you know story, you, yeah, you yeah. you've got that you've got that uh, ability to be able to say hey, you know that song's about me i mean yeah 
and you should and i think you should you know well you said you you know you were part of the thing that inspired it so you know i'd definitely go with that the funny thing that came out of that though was a couple of years ago uh the bbc i think it's like it's six o'clock on the news or something do it it was like the anniversary of i predict right or something can't remember and on the news they were interviewing all the members and stuff and they were saying about the black wire gig and then a photo came up of you know in people's living rooms while they're having the tea of me on stage in my underpants with a bouncer <laughs> like this in my face and it's just like yeah i'm glad that you know glad that i can still cause cultural ripples <laughs> that's amazing I think um, that, that's, that's probably a good segue into kind of where we wanted to close out we've kind of meandered around the noughties and i feel like we could, we could probably do all this this all over again we'd love to get yeah. you on the show again to, I'd, I'd love to dig to even yeah, even deeper yeah, yeah. right but I yeah. guess for, for when this is coming out, you know, this is coming out obviously in January and we had Laura uh, Jean Marsh of the Giddy Stratosphere mm-hmm. film. I know you, you, your, your pals from, from back in, you know, pals from That's back right. in the That's right, yeah, yeah, many for so, years. Yeah. So you've got a, part, a walk-on part in the film, is that right? Well, it, it started off as a walk-on part and then right. I just kept hanging around until they wrote other parts in. Which is which is sort of what I've done with everything in my life. I've kind of just cascaded through life, you know, like a bit of sellotape picking up fluff as I go along. And this was just another one of those. I'm not calling the film fluff. I'm just saying that it's another one of those things that I picked up by just hanging around. And so the walk on part actually became a scripted part. Uh, so I play um, I play a, a very sort of disgruntled venue owner at the time. Brilliant. So, um, so all these, you know, it's set in 2006 or whatever, but, you know, this guy, like me, is all, almost 40. All, all the almost is an important, Very important. Uh, that's the key word, yeah. Prefix, yeah. Um, who's sort of like, his head is stuck in, like, the mid-90s, you know, Britpop was his time, and he doesn't understand what all these post-punk bat worshippers are doing in his venue. Um, but, yeah, I mean, one thing about being on the set of that film was um, seeing people coming down from hair and makeup and the costume department and going, this is spot on. It is absolutely bang on. This is exactly what these people look like at the time, which I found fascinating because all the kids there that were the actors, they're all the age that we were then. They've got no concept of any of this stuff. One That's of them, what that's... Laura was saying, yeah. wasn't it? She was, yeah. she was saying it was the, the thing that she got was most excited about is the fact that they got it absolutely right. And that's the yeah. thing she wanted, she wanted to get the look and style and everything right. Yeah, and, uh... yeah, yeah. That, well, that was it, you know, there wasn't, there wasn't any people in like Libertine, Libertine's tunics or anything. <laughs> no. Because apart from Ronnie Joyce, who else wore them? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and, so yeah i mean it it looked great and i think it's funny what i was going to say was um one of these young actors was asking me uh like so how did people dance to this music then (laughs) i don't know don't ask me So, yeah. I don't think you'd. I don't think you'd. Uh, yeah, that's a really good question. I would not know how to answer that one. It's you just. I would answer it with. There was take, a lot of jerky movements, wasn't there? Like it didn't look yeah, very good. Yeah. No. Take I a mean, couple of these, son, and then you'll then you'll know. Would be well, my answer. Exactly. Yeah. It, it wasn't something that you could do with your with your. It had to be a subconscious kind of like movement, yeah. really, or a chemically enhanced movement, I should say. Yeah. 
I'm I'm really looking forward to seeing the Giddy Stratospheres film. And as we said further up the episode, I think this era. In fact, that's one thing we wanted to ask. What what was the name of this kind of scene we're talking about? We, we don't, Rick and I've been talking about this. We don't think there is one yet. And if if there isn't, would you have a suggestion for this? I know I know what it isn't. <laughs> hmm. Not the new not new rock revolution. No, it's certainly uh, it's no. not that. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Um, maybe you know what? Maybe it's important that it doesn't have a name. Mm. I like that. I like that. I'm not sure about it. I like it. I'm not sure. We'll see. Well, we'll see. Mull it over. Sleep yeah. on it. Yeah, well, we will. Yeah, definitely yeah. will. But um, it's been so good to talk to you. Um, and you. It's been thank great. Thank you so much. And as Rick said, we'd love to have you back again at some point. I would, I would love to. There's so much more. And when when this whole thing finishes, maybe we could meet and have a pint or a glass of red wine. That'd be even Fantastic. nicer. Fantastic. That sounds cool. brilliant. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Good. Good luck with the rest of lockdown three, and uh, speak to you soon. Thank you. Take care, both Thanks, of you. All right. Don't know about you, Rick, but as soon as we put the phone down, the phone down in inverted commas, to Tom, I sat there and just thought that was the best chat I've had in a long, long, long time. And I, I, I'd say hands down my favourite guest so far on Demo Tapes that I've talked to anyway. What do you think? Yeah, yeah I think you're totally right. And he's one of those guests that neither of us had met before or certainly... I think we remembered them from back in the day, but he wasn't like a contact of ours or anything. He was just a name that came up. And when you go into an interview like that, you never quite know what to expect. I suppose if it's someone you know, you can kind of predict how an interview is going to run. So, yeah, it was it was quite a surprising one for me. And I think he definitely lived up to that title of being an oracle of the noughties to the point that we barely even talked about Black Wire, did we? No. And I, I think we were we kind of, you know, we always go through a bit of an episode planning session before we, we do an interview or, or whatever. And uh, we were talking about, you know, we, we've got loads. You've got loads of Blackwire questions lined up that we didn't even end up getting to, because uh, I just think that the, the tone of the conversation just wasn't right for those questions. And the thing, you know, the thing I absolutely loved about the interview was the fact that it just got, it went down the road that I love, which is that you know talking about the culture of the time and how this scene changed um, people's sounds cheesy, but changed people's lives. And you know that we were talking about the micro scenes and how they were linked or not linked, and you know the different cities and what people wore and all that kind of stuff, and, and how it all came together with you know the um, invention of MySpace and things like that. And to me, that is right on my sweet spot of what I love talking about. Um, so it was just brilliant. And, and he was so kind of measured as well and just kind of really, you know, knew his stuff. And he's clearly a very, very smart guy. What I also thought was interesting is that we said we had a list of questions that we metaphorically screwed up and threw over our shoulder after a couple of minutes of the interview, right? And I think he'd also prepped as well. So when we stopped the recording, he showed us this um, sheet where he prepared his kind of crib notes, which is essentially... A list of bands on the left which were 100% brilliant and a list of bands on the right that were 100% wank and I think he'd barely had a chance to go into that so we've basically agreed he's definitely coming back on at some point in the future just to simply talk us through that list and argue with us I think there's some argument to be had I agree with some of his choices on the 100% brilliant list and I agree with some on the 100% wank but I'd definitely move a few of those around so I think if anything there's there's a whole there's a whole trove of chat to be had there right I can't wait for that. It was actually really sweet because we got to the very end and he kind of picked up this piece of paper and put it on camera and went, oh, yeah, I've kind of done this and we haven't even talked through this. And we both went, you've done what? This looks amazing. Let's see it. 
Um, so yeah, we, we didn't get a chance to go through that. But I'm quite glad because I think that, as you said, it's a natural part two. I think what else was uh, was interesting is, and you know, listeners who've uh, who've been in our archive or listened to more of our recent episodes will know that uh, we're quite excited about this film, Giddy Stratospheres, Laura Jean Marsh's uh, upcoming uh, biopic, biopic, biopic. We're back on this. House, house biopic. <laughs> it's not really a biopic, actually. It's more of a, a film. It's a about biopic. The, <laughs> about the noughties um, music. It can't be a biopic because I don't think there's anyone real in it. Um, biopic. It's not biopic. <laughs> uh, it's about, all about the noughties guitar scene. And we kind of knew that Tom was in the film, but we didn't realise quite how big a part he had. And he kind of talked, you know, it was interesting to hear him there talking about how uh, he's got, you know, a fairly a fairly detailed part as a, as a venue owner. So I don't know about you, but it's just whetted my appetite for that film even more now. I just can't wait to see it. Yeah, 100%. And I guess talking as well there about listening to episodes in our archive, we'll probably get a shameless plug in here now. If you've not heard the uh, Laura Jean Marsh interview, that's in the archive. But we've got some other, you know, we've been going for what, over two years now. So if this is your first listen to us, you know, dive back into the archive. We've got stuff with Arctic Monkeys' first ever enemy interview, a chat with Dave Roundtree from Blur, an archive chat with uh, Damon Albarn from Blur, Tom Clark from The Enemy, Johnny Marr. There's a whole load of stuff to be getting through if you're short of something. If you've got a lot of spare time in lockdown and you want to dive into a podcast, we've got a good 25 episodes in the archive there. So, yeah, uh, gorge yourselves on uh, on some music loveliness, I guess. Gorge yourself without the guilt. But I guess that's a good point for us to wrap up this time, isn't it? Um, if you want to get in touch, we always want to hear from you. We are on Instagram and Twitter at DemotapesPod. And you can email us on demotapespod at gmail.com. Also, what does really help is if you are listening on iTunes and you just happen to see that little five-star little button. If you just click on the fifth one, that would really help us. Yeah, it really does help us with spreading the word and getting more passengers on this train of music nostalgia. But yeah, I guess all that's left to say is take care, stay safe, and we will see you on the next episode. Yep, see you on the next one. See you guys. Bye.